a bit. So uh, if you uh, have a child, make sure you encourage them to, to do that. Um, the other thing that we've got coming up, which I'm really excited about, is bingo. Okay. The last time we did this, it was a total blast. So we want to encourage you guys to come on out and play bingo. I'm, I'm planning on being here uh, because I want to win. I'm a winner. And uh, I want to I get it done. So uh, $5 per person, and, and uh, you can bring some friends. It's a good time. And then we don't have slides for these quite yet, but we are doing a Good Friday service in addition to our two Easter services. Uh, on Good Friday, it's a little bit more of a somber service. We walk through the cross and, and kind of meditate on the work of God uh, and what he did uh, on the cross. And, and, and we just really spend some time thinking about that work. And then we celebrate Easter on Sunday. So I uh, want to encourage you to be praying for Easter. Pray that you can bring some folks. Uh, pray for someone that, that maybe you can invite and just pray that God would really uh, be faithful for uh, Easter. Uh, and, and then, uh, in addition to all that, I get to dedicate a baby. So, Oz and his family, come on up. <clears throat> so, this is Evangeline. And uh, there you go. Yeah, you can, you can climb up there like that, buddy. And she's, has, she smiles like 24-7. She's like the best. Hopefully, she'll still smile. when I, Can I hold you? Okay. Well, wait one minute, okay? All right. So um, one of the things that uh, we do when we do a baby dedication is we recognize that, that we, um, you know, we, we're a family, and we, we can't do this by ourselves. And so one of the things that we ask of the, the mom and dad is to make a covenant with you, their church family, that they are going to that they're going to raise little Evangeline according to the Bible and according to the gospel and, and to teach this young little girl who Jesus is in hopes that she would follow after the Lord. And so, Laura and Zach, would you covenant with your church family to continue to raise the little Evangeline according to the gospel and the word of God? Yes, we do. And so, likewise, church, they need your help and they want your help. That's why they're standing up here because they, they want to make that covenant with you and they want you to covenant back with them that you would help and assist them and pray for them and encourage them to continue to walk with the Lord and to raise little Evangeline according to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So church family, would you covenant with Zach and Laura as they walk with the Lord with little Evangeline? Yes. All right. Uh, and now you're married. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, kidding. Okay, let, let's pray. Hi! Oh. <laughs> Look at, this is what I see every week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for Zach and Laura, uh, their relationship with you, Lord, their commitment to walking with you and to teaching, Lord, these little ones, especially Evangeline here, Lord, the word. And I pray that you would cover their home, that you would protect them, that you would uh, encourage them and equip them to raise little Evangeline according to the word of God and the gospel. And may she one day turn to you and walk with you, Lord, and know you for the great God and King that you are. And we trust you for it in Jesus' name. The church said, Amen. 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 <laughs> you want to stay up? You want to hear me just sit right here? <laughs> All right, give me a hand. Thank you, guys. Love you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
That's always fun. Did you hear the whistle on my cuff? <laughs> All right. Um, so Haggai, I tackled this book in part because um, it's only two chapters, and I was hoping it would be a little bit simpler of a book to study through and uh, to prepare for Mark when we launch Mark on Easter Sunday. We're going to go through the, uh, the book of Mark, and we have some uh, ESV journals and stuff like that outside that for the book of Mark if you want them, but... And obviously, the book has turned out to be uh, way more in-depth than I even really realized, just the way it's connected with Ezra and Jeremiah and the exile and all the different history that this book represents. <clears throat> and so if you haven't been here uh, in, in your, or if you're visiting, essentially, this book marks uh, the return from exile for the Jewish people. So the Jewish people... They, they had rebelled against God, and they had intermingled their faith with other gods. And the reality then, because of that, is God allowed them to be taken into exile by the Babylonian Empire. And while they were in exile for 70 years, after 70 years, the Babylonians were then uh, overtaken by the Persians, and King Cyrus of the Persians told the Jewish people that they could now be free, and he basically wrote them a check that they would go back to Jerusalem and that they would build the temple that the Babylonians destroyed. And so the temple is a major theme within this book. And that temple is all about God's presence and him being there with his people. It's a really big deal for the people to have uh, their temple. Without the temple, there's no sacrifices, so there's no forgiveness of sins. And they would continually basically be living spiritually unclean. And what happens is because they go back to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem's in shambles. It's, it's not what they thought it would be. Uh, they aren't going to build the temple like it was. It's not going to be the same kind of splendor as Solomon's temple with all of its gold and all of its, its beauty and all of its splendor. Uh, and so they sit on their butts, literally, for 16 years. They don't build the temple. And instead, they focus on their houses. And because of their focus on the houses and because they're not focusing on God's presence, their fruit is not yielding. Their, their orchards are not giving its fruit, and there is very little food for them. It's literally that they eat, and they're not filled. Uh, they drink, and they're still thirsty. <clears throat> and, uh, and so Haggai comes along, and he says, hey, after 16 years, God uses this prophet to speak to the people that they would go back, and they would build the temple, that they would build the presence of God and that they would get back to the relationship with God that they had. And they do. They, they hear the message. Initially, there's judgment upon them in the, in the first chapter. Uh, and then uh, after that, they respond, they repent, and they begin to build the temple. And Haggai gets a second message from uh, December 18th, 520 BC. This is literally the date that this oracle is mentioned to the people. And so if you would this morning, if you're able to, would you stand with me as we honor God's word and we read from this beautiful, ancient, holy scripture. <clears throat> the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and their horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. 
On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiltiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, reign over us in our hearts this morning. Would you speak to us and minister to our souls? We're desperate for you, and we need you, Lord, in this dark world, and we trust that you'll speak to us now. In Jesus' name, the church said, amen. amen. You be seated. Please. Um, <clears throat> so, the title of the message this morning is uh, a, a Whole New World. And I don't know about you or what your week was like, but I, I can tell you that, that as you know, I've progressed in age and, and hopefully matured to some degree or another, um, my body just yearns for a new world. My uh, the creation, it says, yearns for a whole new world. And, and I'll mention to you, because I know some of you are going to ask, and I don't want to answer the question a million times. I have Band-Aids on my hands uh, because I slipped on my e-bike and slid into home, uh, home plate. And uh, nobody cheered for me, uh, which was kind of a bummer. And, uh, you know, I, I, I picked myself up, cleaned out all the dirt and, and what have you, and I was literally, you know, shaking as I was cleaning my hands, the reality of, of the human body falling apart, right? I mean, just like you know that, that there's something about life, there's something uh, about this world that we know is insufficient. And this, this passage points us to what many theologians would, would call or consider the already and the not yet. There's a couple different things that are happening within the text that I read to you this morning uh, that we read together. Now, what do I mean by the already not yet? That's the tension that we always live in as Christians, that certain things are already, they're already done, they're already finished, but not yet. And we kind of just live in that weird little tension. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you're a Christian, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, you know that your sins are forgiven. That's already, that's done, right? At the same time, you still have sin, which is really frustrating. My wife was actually sharing with some friends the other day. Uh, I've heard her say it a couple times in the last couple weeks how much she just hates sanctific sanctification. Uh, you know, the, the sanctification is the process of Christian growth. And that usually comes by making mistakes. It comes uh, by doing stupid things. It, it's hard, and, and that's the not yet, right? We, we still sin. John says it like this. He says, he who says he's without sin is a liar. So we have sin, but we're forgiven of sin. That's the already and the not yet. And what, it, what God is pointing to through Haggai to Zerubbabel, the king figure, is that a kingdom is coming, and it has already come, already, not yet. The kingdom is here, but not yet. And that kingdom has shaken the world. This is the second time that Haggai has said this. Look at chapter 2, verse 6. He, he's echoing it again. So now he's saying it twice. For thus says the Lord of hosts, right? There's the Lord of hosts. That's, he's sovereign. He's over all things. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake the nations, and all of the treasures of all of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with my glory. This is a great shaking that he's talking about. Uh, I, I don't know, uh, again, what your week has looked like, but man, this world is bananas. I mean, just even the stuff that's happening in the Supreme Court and, 
and what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. And, you know, we just got out of the whole virus thing. I mean, if anything, we're all begging for, longing for, yearning for a whole new world. The shaking of the nations is actually occurring even right now. And we know that the shaking of the nations has already occurred by the coming of Christ, by the coming of Jesus. Now, this word shakings is really interesting because he uses, Haggai uses a word inside of this text to draw the people back into how God has worked amongst the nations. So he's pointing, in a beautiful way that scripture does, he's pointing the people to go back and to remember how God has shaken the nations. And he uses the language here of chariots, riders, and horses. Chariots, riders, and horses. What is this? Well, this is to take us all the way back to Exodus chapter 14 and then into Exodus chapter 15 in Moses' song. And this is Moses' song. This is after the people have been freed from Pharaoh, freed from slavery. They're now moving towards the promised land. And as they're going to the promised land, they come up against the sea. And behind them comes Pharaoh and all of his army. And they're riding what? Chariots and horses. And what he says in the song, Moses and the people, this is from Exodus 15.1, of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And then it says later in verse 5, the floods covered them, and they went down into the depths like a stone. So he's saying, okay, listen, the world is broken. You know the world's broken. You know the world is fractured, and he's saying here, let's be reminded of this reality of how God works with the nations when they defy him. When a nation turns their back on God, when a people turns their back on God, he says, they will be like the Pharaoh's army. They will go under the sea. But he adds to it, okay? He's echoed us back to the, the story of Exodus and and the people riding their chariots and then being sucked under the ocean. But then he uses this other word in verse 22. Take a look. He uses the word overthrow. Now, this is another interesting word. You have horses and riders and chariots to echo us back to Exodus. And overthrow echoes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 23. Chapter 29, 23. What, what, what happens in that story? Literally, the text says that he overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And as he overthrew, the whole land burned out with brimstone, it said, and salt, and nothing could grow there. No plant could sprout there. Overthrow, and now takes us back to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Another group of people turning their back on the Lord. What is God ultimately saying? That he will deal with those things of injustice. He will deal with those nations. He will shake them. He will rattle them. He also uses the language in verse 22, the sword of his brother, that, they, that literally nation will destroy nation. And what is the comfort behind all of this? Well, the comfort is that as the nations grow dark and as our nation grows darker and as morality gets thrown out the door, the, the, what he's doing is he's reminding his people, you don't need to be fearful. I will handle it. I will deal with it. Now, all of us 
at some point we would cry out for justice. We want justice. We want things to be made right. Your soul wants things to be made right. You feel it inside. And when you are watching the television and you're seeing all of the things that are occurring within our own nation and other nations, we would cry out, where are you, God? And the reality is, is that what he's saying here, as he's pointing to a new world and a new kingdom that is going to come, he's saying, one day I will deal with this. He's also saying, I've already dealt with it. Again, the already and the not yet. Christ has come. His presence is here. He has defeated death. He has defeated sin. He is the conqueror of all. He has shaken the nations. We literally have changed the way we do our whole dating system from AD and BC, right? After death and before Christ. We're in BC right now, before Christ, in this text. We're all living in after death. And then what do the nations say? Okay, well, uh, the nations say, that's offensive, so we're going to change it to before common era. We don't want to say before Christ because we don't want to admit that Christ really has shaken the nations. My friends, he has shaken the nations with his presence. There is no no way of getting around the reality that Christ, the Messiah, has shaken the world, and that hopefully he has shaken your world. Now listen to this from Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. Maybe you want to go there as, as we think about this idea of of how crazy the world is and how crazy it's gotten and how we should respond. <laughs> Drink making funny noises. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Oh, that's comforting. Right? That, that's, that's one of those seeker-sensitive verses. Come to Jesus so that you will be like a sheep in a world of wolves. But then he goes on. He says, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Verse 19 is the kicker. When they deliver you, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious. Don't fear. Don't be anxious about what you're going to say, for what you will say will be given to you in that hour. It is not for you. It is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over de to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Another encouraging verse. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 26, have no fear of them. Don't be anxious is the commandment. Don't have fear is the next commandment. And then verse 28, he says it again. He doubles down. Do not fear. Don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then he triples down in verse 31. Fear not. Right? The world's growing dark. The world is getting crazy. The Christian church in the United States is under attack in a way that it never has been before. I was just at a conference in Los Angeles, a pastor's conference. And in that pastor's conference, the sad statistics of the church were shared, the reality of what's happening in the American church over the last two years. 40% of pastors have retired in the last two years. Quit. I don't even know if it's retired. They just quit. 40%. In the same statistics that were mentioned at that conference, they said out of 
out of the rest, the 60%, out of that 60%, 80% of those pastors, 80% of them, would quit the ministry if they could get another job that paid them the same wage. That's the American church. That's what's happening. In addition to that, they're also adding to the reality that those who stepped away from church during the last two years, the majority of those people are not coming back to church. The church is under attack. The kingdom of God is under attack. Right? I mean, we, we now have this thing. This is a real thing within Christian circles called progressive Christianity. <laughs> You don't need to add the word progressive to Christianity. There's no such thing as progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is not Christianity. It's biblical, Christ-centered Christianity. You don't add anything to it. That's one of my frustrations with even in the culture of, well, the church has to be really involved in social justice. Why are we putting social in front of justice? God cares about justice. All justice matters to God, all of it. And the church, just like they were in Haggai's day, the American church has mingled, mingled itself with the world and the world's terminology. And the result is men in the pulpit who don't teach God's word, then the trials and tribulations have come, and now they're quitting. Why? Because they can't please the right and they can't please the left because that's what they did before the coronavirus. I got to please the right and I got to please the left. And now, because of that great divide, the church is infighting itself. And that's why one of the reasons that we've continued to thrive is because we've just kept hammering the drum. Biblical, conservative Christianity. <clears throat> now... It, I don't need to apologize for this, but I have three young boys that I am training to be biblical men. And I'm training my little girl to be a beautiful little girl, to be a woman, because we know there's a difference. And the reality is, is that, that when I take my little girl somewhere, just the two of us, I open the door for her and I tell her, if she was here, I would have her say to you, I open the door, I've said it so many times that now at this point I go, I open the door and I'll say, what do you say, Jolie? Don't date anybody unless they open the door for me. That's right. That's 100% right. And my children need to be taught how to treat women with gentleness and compassion. Men, the biblical mandate, the kingdom mandate in the new world in this world for us as men is to love our wives sacrificially as Christ loves the church. That's Ephesians chapter 5. That's kingdom living. That's biblical world living. Men are to work. And the Bible says if they don't work, you don't eat. This is the word of God. This is God speaking. And what he's saying, those who compromise their faith will go down as the chariots in the ocean 
in Pharaoh's day, they will be overthrown as they were in Sodom's day, and there will be infighting, and they will destroy themselves. And ultimately, all of this is being shared. All of this that I'm sharing with you in the dark culture that we live in is not to hammer home how bad the culture is, but to hammer home how beautiful Christ is, and that we live for Jesus, and we live for him without fear or angst or anxiety. We don't need to be worried. I mean, the Bible told us the world is going to grow dark. I, I know it's shocking. And, it, and at times, especially if you're on any kind of social media, especially the Twitterverse, God forbid you're on that thing, you know that, that things are crumbling and the church is fallen victim to it without the strength of the Bible. Your kingdom, your world will be shaken to the dust if you compromise your faith. And so what does God actually say? It's, it's interesting because he uses this word here in the text, the signet ring. Maybe you remember this from our introduction. But the signet ring was a big deal. Right? The signet ring is the sign of the crown. It was the mark of the king. Uh, essentially, the signet ring would have the king's symbol on it. And when that symbol was used as for a letter, no one could open that unless they were the king. It was sealed. It was closed shot. It was the authority. And while the people were in exile because they had mingled their faith, in Jeremiah, it says that God ripped off the signet ring from the king. And there was, up until this point, there was no king. Because, because that signet ring, which was given to the kings, given to David, given to Solomon, had much abuse. The ring was abused. Saul abused the ring with his ego. David abused the ring with Bathsheba. Solomon, it says, Solomon mingled his faith with many, the Bible says, many strange women. Now, that's not the strange that you think. It was women who were following after other gods. They were following after other gods. And Solomon, who was supposed to be God's man, ended up mingling his faith with many women who didn't worship God, thus diluting, diluting, and tearing apart God's people. So he says I, in Jeremiah, he, he literally, in Jeremiah chapter 22, he says, I am removing the ring from you. There will be no king. You no longer get to have a kingdom. You no longer have promised land. You're going into exile, and the ring is off the table. Basically, in essence, it's almost as if he's saying, I'm going to divorce you. I can't be in a relationship with you because God is holy, and he's pure, and he's righteous, and he's amazing, and he's beautiful, and the people are not, and so God removes himself. But now he gets into the rebuilding of the kingdom, and what he's telling Zerubbabel is, Zerubbabel, I'm now going to make you king, and I'm giving you back my ring. And what it is, is it's a restoration of the messianic line. Zerubbabel is mentioned in Matthew in the lineage of Jesus. This is a common, ordinary man. And God says to this common, ordinary man, because you've listened to the voice of God, and because you've repented of your sin, I restore the ring to you, and oh, by the way, you will be part of the lineage of Jesus. Ultimately, what he's saying here, though, is not so much about Zerubbabel, but the greater than Zerubbabel. He's ultimately talking about Christ. This is what we would call a theophany, 
an appearance of God in Christ in the Old Testament. And that's the encouragement for the church. The encouragement for the church is the past abuse has occurred. The current abuses of the world are still happening. And the world, by the way, it just said it, the world is going to hate you. You got to get used to that. The Bible says, don't be friends with the world. Don't mingle your faith. Don't allow the world to take away the beauty of the current kingdom that he's given us. <clears throat> so he gets into the rebuilding. Okay, the kingdoms that, that turn away from God, they will go down. God will bring justice. We don't need to fear. We don't need to have anxiety because he's going to build us back up. And he uses specific language about Zerubbabel that is also used for us as Christians as well. The things that should be encouraging for us, the things that, that should lighten our spirit. Look at what he says. Look at verse 23. He calls him my servant. This is one of the, the main words that's used in the Old Testament for the king and specifically for Christ himself. The servant, Isaiah 42, prophesying of Christ, verse 1, Behold my servant, of whom I have chosen, in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Amen? Amen. He's, gonna, he's going to make it right. He's made it right for you. You are already saved, and yet he's going to make it right again. There's going to be another advent another return. This, this is the promise of this verse. The signet ring is placed upon you and the nations will be shaken. And oh, by the way, the nations have already been shaken, but a restoration to the world is coming back. And we want to be on the right side of things, don't we? When that return occurs, he says, okay, you're, you're my servant. Then he uses two other things here that are really important to see in the text. Verse 23, he says, I will take you. This is the same language that's used in Exodus, that he will take his people and that he will be their God and they will be his people. It's the same language in Joshua that's used, that he'll take Joshua out. It's the same thing that's used in Samuel for his servant David. I will take you. And then he adds to it, not only will I take you, he says, I have chosen you. Do you see that here? And I will take you and I have chosen you. This is language that is, first of all, used of Jesus. Jesus is the servant. Jesus is the one who has been chosen. Matthew 12, 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. That's who Jesus is, the chosen one. And Luke 23, 35, the people stood by watching as he was being crucified, and they literally say to him, mocking him, if you're really the chosen one, take yourself off of the cross. Now here's... As God's building this new world and building us up as his temple, this language is using for us. You were chosen, and he has taken you out of the world. You have been removed. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. He has taken you, and he has chosen you. What did Jesus say to his disciples in John 15? You did not choose me, but I chose you. And then he says, not only did I choose you, I chose you for a purpose. And that purpose, he says, is that you would bear much fruit. 
and that whatever you do in the Father, in my name, that he would give it to you. Peter adds to this as well. Peter, you remember Peter, good old Peter. Peter, the one who denied the Christ. Peter, the one who continually put his foot in his mouth after the coming of the Holy Spirit, after his great message in the book of Acts, after he had repented. A man who who once didn't know who he was to a man who fully embraced who he was, writes in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, you, speaking of himself as well, you are a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people, a people called by his name out of darkness into the marvelous light. This is your identity, church. Have you embraced that? Do you walk in that? You are the holy nation. You are the light of the world. And the world's going to look at you and they're going to be frustrated with you because when light shows up, the roaches want to run. And that's literally what we are. We're the light. God's light is in us. We are this nation. We are this priesthood. Stupid cup. Now let's, let's just, again, be honest, and let's, let's go ahead and just keep offending people. In the sense that, that <clears throat> we live in a great nation, and we are American citizens, and praise God for that and the freedoms that we have. But... Y- Your hope is not in the United States of America. You're the holy nation. You don't belong to the United States of America. You belong to Christ. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. The Bible says, okay, if you're, wait a minute, well, America. Okay, yeah, America, it's great, I understand. But the Bible says of your identity, of you as a holy nation, that you are a sojourner. You are an alien. You don't belong here. I know the world's caving in. It's trying to crush you and ruin you. And the establishment of God's kingdom has been placed through Christ, and we live for that kingdom. We're part of that kingdom. We are the royal priesthood. This is a big deal, especially for those of you who are recovering Catholics. (laughs) Because within Catholicism, in order to be be a a set-apart holy saint... You have to have so many verifiable miracles. You got to do that. So you got to walk on water or something. You got to heal somebody. And then you got to die. <laughs> Those are kind of the rules. And only certain people, only certain people are, are the royal, set apart priesthood. Only certain people are saints. But that's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is you are a saint. Because the miracle of being born again has occurred in you. That's the only thing needed to make you this holy nation, this people that will shake all the other nations. You are born again. You are the chosen ones along with Christ. He has chosen you. I mean, if you ever just want some encouragement, just read Ephesians chapter 1. Because, again, that already not yet, he says that in history past, before the foundation of the world, he chose you. 
before you did anything right, before you did anything wrong. He chose you before the foundation of the world. And, and you're being saved. There's sanctification. And then at the end of Ephesians 1, he says, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. What? What does that mean? Back to the signet ring. You have been sealed by the king's ring. You are literally enveloped in Christ, stamped with the authority of King Jesus. And the mail has been sent out, and Jesus is guaranteeing its delivery. Come on. This is... This has to encourage you because guess what? The news wants to ruin you. CNN wants to crush you, right? Politicians aren't going to always be, but they're not your savior, right? And we all get frustrated with that. You usher in the kingdom, not through politics. You usher in the kingdom by worshiping Christ, by putting your identity in Jesus, Your identity has to be firmly rooted, firmly planted in God or the world will ruin you. One commentator says it really well. Let me read this to you. What can threaten those who belong to this Christ? What can threaten us or make our lives meaningless or irrelevant? If Christ has died and raised from the dead, then his ultimate victory over all principalities And all powers is sure. And in him, our value and importance is forever established. No political authority can stand against him. No false religious power can withstand his might. Even the powerful effects of the curse that we see all around us, sorrow, broken relationships, famine, sickness, wars, cancer, even death itself cannot hold God's people captive. Their power was broken once and for all at the cross. If you are a Christian, you are chosen in Christ. And therefore, you are as precious to God as the royal seal on a king's hand. What then, as Romans tells us, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. It goes on and says, for those who trust in Christ, death itself is merely the doorway into a glorious eternity in his presence. What king can stand against Jesus? What president can stand against Jesus? What social media outlet can stand or silence Jesus? The answer is absolutely no one. And because of that, we as Christians must carry our identity and not be silenced as well. Which means as Christ has shaken up the world, as Christ is going to shake up the world, you first of all have to allow Christ to shake up your life. There needs to be a shaking within the church. There needs to be an awakening of pastors who will unapologetically preach God's word and preach God's kingdom and preach the gospel without letting the culture dictate what scripture says, but letting scripture speak for what scripture speaks. Shame on us if we ever include any other thought, any other philosophy, any other lie into the word of God. You have to let Christ shake you. That means for some of us, we need to let God say, no more of this, no more of that. 
I can't remember what the message was several years back, but Wayne preached a particular message, and I remember he said to the church, we're the only ones in the world who pay to store things. How many of you have a storage unit just filled with stuff? Right? I don't, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I'm like, let's just throw things out. Just get rid of stuff. Right? I mean, we live in this beautiful area. We live in this wonderful place. Some of you have like 18 bicycles. Right? You got to have a downhill bike. You got to have an uphill bike. You got to have a mountain bike. You got to have a street bike. You got to have an electric bike. You know, I mean, we have so much. And here we are complaining about gas prices. You got a bike. <laughs> and for the most part, most of us don't have an issue still filling up our tank. Because we are literally, 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 like literally, the richest people that have ever lived in the history of the world. You, in your seat. And yet, we complain and we moan because we have forgotten our identity. We have forgotten who the real king is. We have forgotten that we live for this kingdom and not the kingdom of Christ and not this current kingdom and this current establishment. We are not to be complaining and moaning and whining about who's in office because the Bible literally tells us you pray for him. That's your job to the authorities. Pray for their soul. We have everything, and yet at times we live as if and act as if we don't. God has to shake you. He needs to shake me. I mean, I woke up this morning feeling that in my soul. Shake me, Lord, as you have shaken the earth. Terry Heilig, um, he's one of our elders years back. Some of you might know Terry and some of you may not. I've known Terry since I was really little. And there's a story of Terry and myself um, which will illustrate this idea of shaking. <laughs> Terry used to own a card shop, a football, uh, baseball card shop down by the pet store. And as a kid, I'd walk down there and I would hang out there and and I took one of my buddies with me, and he had some change, he had some money, and I grabbed it from him, you know, kind of joking around because I was going to buy some cards with his money, and I stuffed it in my pockets. And he was telling me to give it back to him, and Terry was telling me to give it back to him. And, and Terry literally, this is, this is how long I've known him, walked out from behind the counter, grabbed me by my feet, and shook me upside down until the money fell out on the ground. Right? Like there's things in our soul sometimes, there's things in our life, and we need Jesus to take us by the heels every now and then in the process of sanctification that is hard to deal with and just let him shake it out. Just get that filth and that muck and those attitudes and that thanklessness. Just get it out of my life. That we would be people filled with gratitude that this new world is here for us, the presence is here for us, in us. That new world exists right here. And we should be, of all people, the, the most joyous, the most happy, the most emotionally in touch. And the second thing I think that's important here is we 
close out this book is not only would we allow God to shake us, but that we would also, as Zerubbabel is said of in the text that he's a servant, may we finally really release ourselves to be the servants of Christ. I mean, how much longer are you going to hold on to the temporal things of this earth? I have to ask that question of myself too, I think. How much longer will I hold to the the temporal things that are going to be destroyed? When my father passed away, he left behind a treasure trove of beautiful vehicles that weren't totally finished or rebuilt, but they're 1940 Chevy pickup, a 1969 uh, Corvette. And most all of it, I had to sell it. And there were people around me that just couldn't believe, you know, why are you selling it? Well, number one, I needed to take care of my mom and my, my sisters and ensure that there was a financial thing there because now the, the caregiver, the, the main person who was bringing home the money is gone. So we needed that money. But, but it didn't bother me all that much because I knew all of those cars one day, they're going to burn. I mean, I remember at that age when I was at I, some of... Some of you might remember far back when, when I, I went down to Mexico and, and my grandfather told me not to go to Mexico because he said bad things happen when you go to Mexico. And I, I went to Mexico anyway to go preach Jesus in Mexico for 30 days. And he bought me, my grandfather bought me a, a, a Geo Metro that, man, I could get that thing going downhill. <laughs> I took it down to Mexico and I ran an alto sign. Alto means stop. And I hit a bus. Yeah, totaled the car. My grandfather said, I told you so. (laughs) And I went out because this is what a 21-year-old kid does when he gets the money, he got the insurance. And I went down and I I went and bought myself, well, went into debt, a really bright red Camaro. Yeah. And that's how I got Allie to marry me. (laughs) It's a total lie. Yeah, she married me in spite of the car. (laughs) So the funny thing is, (laughs) getting sidetracked here. (laughs) The funny thing is we brought that car back from San Diego when we first moved here in 2004. And that was a huge winter. And we moved to Tahoe Donner. And this thing had glass T-tops. And for eight months out of the year, it had like 80 feet of snow on top of it. (laughs) But I say that because now I'm in that place in life. I'm like, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm happy with what I have. Because the, the kingdom is what matters. So you, you, you've got to start seeing. We have to start seeing as the world grows darker. We've got to serve Jesus. Will you share your faith with your neighbor? I mean, that's really difficult, especially if you don't like your neighbor. Right? You, people have said, you know, even in the church, it's hard to love people in the church. And people have said, you know, well, you know, I, I, I left the church because the church is filled with all kinds of really mean people. You go, yeah, but the disciples didn't leave Jesus because of Judas. There's always going to be some bad apples. There's always going to be imperfection. We've got to dedicate ourselves completely to the kingdom. Because the kingdom is coming, and it's already here. The kingdom has shaken the nations, and it will shake the nations. No army will stand against it, and justice will prevail. 
it will. It's promised. It's a promise here to his people. It's a promise to us. And it's time for us to put away the temporal things of this earth and to serve the greater kingdom. The Bible says literally the harvest is plentiful. Therefore, pray for workers because the workers are few. And as you heard me state earlier, a lot of those workers are quitting in droves. I sit on a board of 100 churches. Not all of them are doing that well. For all kinds of different reasons. One of them being cultural compromise. Another one being, you know, loving you is hard. I mean, the world's going to hate you, but Jesus loves you, and I don't know why, but I love you too. You know, I, I have always, up until getting into ministry, ran from responsibility. It's not easy to be responsible for a church our size. It's not easy being responsible for a beautiful wife and beautiful kids, let alone a church, let alone all those who are on staff. I go to sleep with this weight that I know I'm not supposed to carry. But the reality is, is what we have here is a beautiful thing. And it's not because of me, and it's not because of Wayne. It's because of the king. It's because of Jesus. Well, you finally start taking responsibility for the kingdom. Because it's worth it, my friends. It's hard, but it's worth it. Stop holding on to the world and start serving him. And then lastly, I think another takeaway from this book and from this last passage, the challenge would be that we would patiently pray for the coming shakedown. What do I mean by patiently pray? First of all, we don't know when he's coming back. And if anyone tells you a date you can guarantee he's not coming back on that date. Because he said no one knows the hour. No one knows the day. And it's not for anyone else to know. And he's going to come like a thief in the night. It's going to come when you least expect it. Are you ready for that coming kingdom? But are you praying for that coming kingdom? Praying, God, come. Again, the, the older that I have become, the more that the world grows darker and the harder that life seems to get for us as Christians, the more I find myself saying, I am completely ready for the coming shakedown and the return of Jesus. Come now, Lord. Bring us back to yourself. We are already with you, but not yet. And one day we will sit in heaven with him in the new Jerusalem. And he himself will be the temple. He himself will be the light. There will be no need for sun, for his radiance will be the thing that lights up our world. And there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more depression, no more e-bike crashes. We'll be in perfect harmony with the Lord. The Bible says that the lion will lay down with the lamb. And like Zerubbabel, this ordinary man who finally stood up along with Haggai and Joshua the priest, ordinary people, 
He was faithful with little things, and so God put him in charge to be faithful with bigger things. And he allowed him to be in the lineage of Jesus. Where do you need to be faithful for the kingdom? You know, I could use this moment tell you about all the ministries that we have and all the things that you should be doing and all the areas that you should be serving. I don't, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about giving your complete life to him and living for his glory because it's worth it. If you're faithful over little, he'll give you much. The daily grind of childcare and study and working and witnessing and laboring for God, man, it can be so hard, but it's worth it. Three times this week, different individuals wrote me and said, praying for you, don't grow weary in doing good. And I thought, okay, I needed that. Were they worried about me? (laughs) You don't need to worry about me. And you don't need to worry about this church because we're going to continue to be faithful to preach the word of God. And we're not going to compromise it because it will ruin the church. It'll kill the church. The church has to be founded on the thing that founded it. The word of God, the kingdom, is right here in this book. And if I ever stray from it, Wayne has said this before, get rid of me. Keep the book. Get rid of the man. Keep the book. Don't let the culture ruin you. Stand firm in your faith. Stand strong in your faith. Stand strong for the word of God. Be the conservative person that God has called you to be. And I know that's a political term. And I don't mean it in a political sense. I mean it in a biblical sense. One of the things that's going to make us stand out, because this is where we're headed, is going to be the fact that our men are faithful to their women. And that we live with our husbands and with our wives for the kingdom of God. And we keep, we keep that sacred marriage what it is. And the other thing is, we're going to keep having babies. Right? Yeah. Not that row. Too old. Too old. You said it. I didn't say it. That's what happened in the first century church. The Roman Empire became totally decadent in every sexual way possible. I mean, everything that, that, that we're compromising in as a society already happened in Rome. And the church spread like wildfire because Christians, as they lived the way they were supposed to, stood out like a sore thumb. And they were like, there's something about them. You can read some of the old writings of even outside of, of biblical uh, biblical reading where they're like, these, these people are weird. And they love their wives and they love their husbands and they keep having children in this world where everyone's saying, stop having kids. I literally saw a post on Twitter yesterday that said to, to lower your carbon footprint, stop having children. 
So stop having children so you can save the world for future generations. That's madness. But what do you expect when sin has crept in on every side? We are the remnant. We've been called out of Babylon to live for the new kingdom of Jerusalem, which is to live for the better than Zerubbabel, is to live for Jesus. Amen? May we stand firm and not grow weary in kingdom building. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being gracious to me, Lord. I don't deserve it. And neither does anyone in this room, in all honesty. Yet you've proven to be faithful to us, even when we're faithless. And so we worship you and we thank you for that. We ask in your name, that you would help us to stand strong in this world. That we would be firm. That we would not be cowards. And I understand, Lord, that this kind of message and so many others are a real turnoff for certain people. But at the same time, Lord, I know that for others, it's a bomb and it heals. And at the end of the day, we're not about pleasing men. We're about pleasing you. You're our Savior. You are our King. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with us? We're going to sing a couple songs in closing. Yeah.